everybody. Welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Sadly, that was Highland Park, Illinois, on the 4th of July parade. Another mass shooting. Uh, I think it was six or seven people died in that one. Um, I don't know what's happening in this country, folks. I, I, I just think we've become a, a bloodthirsty nation of savages. One shooting after another. But the interesting thing is when you listen to that clip, as horrifying as it sounds, there's that pause that pause between the gunshots. And you know what that pause is? That's this maniac reloading another high-capacity clip. The same high-capacity magazine clips that Republicans refuse to ban. Now, just imagine if we didn't have high-capacity magazine clips. Imagine if we didn't have AR-15s. That clip would sound a lot different. There'd probably be one gunshot or two gunshots or maybe six gunshots. And a lot less people would be dead, not just in that shooting, but in every other shooting. These are weapons of war. They're not needed. They're not needed for the average American. If you want to shoot a freaking groundhog, you can do that. You don't need an AR-15. Let me go to that McConnell, McConnell clip. I, I think yesterday's <clears throat> shooting is another example of what the problem is. The problem is mental health and these young men who seem to be inspired to commit these atrocities. So I think the bill that we passed targeted the problem. In that particular instance, it was school safety and mental health. We have got to figure out some way to identify <clears throat> these troubled young men, and it's very complicated. I'm sorry, Turtle Man, it's not mental health, okay? It's not mental health, it's not pot, it's not porn, it's not video games, it's not violent TV shows. You know what's responsible for gun violence, Mr. McConnell? Guns. That's what's responsible for gun violence. And until we focus on banning these weapons and banning these munitions and increasing the age limits across the board, and expanding back background checks and holding people and families responsible and holding manufacture, gun manufacturers responsible. We're going to see week after week after week of mass shootings. And if, you know, history is any indication of what lies ahead, there is, there's probably going to be another shooting in a week from now or less. And where's that one going to be? Now that school's out, is that going to be at a camp? Are little kids in camp going to die now? Or is it going to be another movie theater or a mall or a sporting event or a house of worship? This shit has to stop. And the more these people in Congress focus on pot and porn and video games and TV shows and all kinds of bullshit, nothing's going to change. I know we just passed a historic piece of legislation recently, but it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't go, it's not really doesn't go far at all. It's something. And I'm glad we have it because something is better than nothing. But it's not going to stop a maniac like this guy who waltzed in, uh, into a building and went up to a roof and fired 72 shots into a bunch of people celebrating our nation's independence. 
You can't even go to a parade anymore. So that's what Mitch McConnell and his pals in the Republican Party should focus on. Guns. Let's get rid of the guns. The other subject I want to briefly touch upon before we bring on our guests is the January 6th committee hearings, which they're really starting to, I think, move the needle. Um, This week, Pat Cipollone, who is Trump's uh, former White House counsel, he's been subpoenaed. He's going to try to uh, get out of it by claiming executive privilege and all sorts of nonsense, but uh, that's not going to work. Um, and could he be the J- the John Dean uh, of uh, Trumpgate, of, of, of the big lie gate? Who knows? John Dean, of course, was the uh, White House counsel for Nixon, who really ended up being the chief prosecution witness and brought the whole house of cards down. Um, so that'll be interesting to see whether a deal is cut with Cipollone and, and he subpoenas in a deal or whether he's a hostile witness and, and there is no, you know, give and take, you know, I'm sure they'll agree to some stuff, uh, to bring him in. But, um, the importance of his testimony on the heels of Cassidy Hutchison's testimony, she was the uh, assistant to, uh, Trump's, uh, chief of staff, Mark Meadows, uh, is going to be critical because he's going to be able to confirm everything she said from, Trump knowing about the weapons that were uh, uh, he wanted allowed in um, from that to the craziness that went on in the limo um, with Trump grabbing the wheel and Trump grabbing his Secret Service agent by the neck uh, to uh, Mark Meadows uh, being completely indifferent to the fact that thousands of people were storming into the Capitol. So his testimony is going to be key. And also it's key because it's just one step closer now to Mar-a-Lago. The next hearing is scheduled for this coming Tuesday, July 12th. The focus is going to be on the lead up to J6, uh, specifically the white nationalist groups like Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters. Um, don't really understand the name Three Percenters, Maddie. Uh, maybe I missed the memo on that, but it's like, if you're like, you want to preserve like white, shouldn't you be like the 99 percenters or the 98 percenters? Like, you're really not thinking very highly of yourself, right? <laughs> Math is not their... Right, not their strong suit. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be real interesting. I don't know about you guys, but I've been riveted to those hearings. Um, Adam Schiff, who's on the committee, said the next couple of hearings, quote, will cover the run-up to January 6th, the marshalling of this mob that appeared on the mall that day, and the attack on the Capitol. So... Um, The most important thing, though, is, is it moving the needle with Republicans? I think it has on some very, very small level. But uh, listen to what Liz Cheney had to say recently. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Amen, sister. That's the main thing. Years from now, when Trump is either in jail or he's just like an old buffoon golfing in, uh, in Florida and, and doing his, uh, you know, Rocky Graziano routine like Robert De Niro in the movie, uh, Raging Bull, where he's just like walking around telling jokes with a big fat belly. Um, years from now, these Republicans, many of them are young. They, they're going to be, 
they have to live with themselves. I don't think most of them actually give a shit about what they see when they look in the mirror, but they have families, they have kids, they have grandkids, and they have legacies. And as uh, Congresswoman Cheney said, that's what they should be focusing on because they're trading in their legacies for Donald Trump to, to protect and defend um, uh, Donald Trump. And that's just, I don't understand why, because he returns no loyalty whatsoever. The thing that is exciting me lately is that I do think Trump is going to be held accountable. I do think that the J6 committee is making great progress. I do think that Merrick Garland at the Justice Department is uh, getting more and more pressure through these hearings to ultimately indict. But the thing I'm excited the most about is Georgia. This is where the uh, district attorney uh, has a grand jury, and they've just recently subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani and a few others in his legal team. And they're going after him specifically for that call that, that he made to um, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where he was basically admitting that he lost the election. But if you just give me one more vote, I win. See how that works? That's illegal. That's election tamper, tampering with an election. That's election fraud. That is something that could put his ass in jail. So we're going to watch that real closely. Let's go to Kinsner. Wrath of the Lord God Almighty come upon you, your health, your family, your home, your livelihood. And, and I pray, if it be God's will, that you suffer. Cock-sucking little bastard. We're going to get you. We know where you live. We're coming to your house. We're going to get you, Mike. You little cock-sucking bastard. These are messages. What you just heard are just a microscopic sampling of the messages left on the office voicemail of Representative Adam Kinzinger, who, if you don't know, is not just on the J6 committee, but with Liz Cheney is one of the two Republicans. And I, I say this with absolute reverence, one of the two Republicans who are standing up for democracy. And it is an absolute travesty. It's shocking and disgusting that people in the name of God would be calling him up and saying these things and, and threatening him and threatening his family. But what's most shocking, you, know, you, you think about Adam Kinzinger, the guy was Air Force Special Ops running combat missions to defend and protect his country. And they're leaving messages on his phone, these kind of vile, threatening, dangerous messages out of sycophantic fealty to Donald Trump, a guy who never suited up for anything, who, who had five deferments for Vietnam, who has no loyalty to anyone or his country. This is who they're attacking of, a decorated war vet? It's truly unbelievable. And you know why they do it? Because it's a cult. This is not a constituency. When I hear the word like constituency as it relates to Trump, I get enraged because I'm part of a constituency. You know what I'll do every four years? I'll throw a bumper sticker maybe on my car if I don't feel like if, if, if it doesn't bother me to slop up my car. Okay. Or I'll, I'll wear a button. Okay. That's it. I'm not in a cult. These people are in a cult. They are brainwashed. And that's going to bring us to our first guest. We're going to talk a little bit more about 
cults because Spencer Schneider is not just a New York City-based attorney. Uh, he is someone who just wrote a book, which has just been published. It's just been released. You can get it on Amazon and bookstores everywhere. He just wrote a book called Manhattan Cult Story because Spencer was in a secret Manhattan cult for 23 years. Welcome into the back room, Spencer. Nice to be here, Andy. For the audience, I just want to say I've known Spencer uh, 40 years, around 40 years. And um, about six years ago, we were walking in lower Manhattan, and he stopped and looked at me and said, did I ever tell you I was in a cult? And I think maybe my reaction was, no, I think I would have remembered that. <laughs> and Spencer proceeded to tell me this incredible story. Uh, I'm not a person that's shocked very easily, and I was shocked. I was stunned. I was riveted. I was horrified. I, I had a, a range of emotions because of the, the content that he was sharing with me about what had happened to him over a 23-year period, where basically, essentially, and he's going to talk about this, almost every aspect or every aspect of his life was controlled by the cult leader. Now, this didn't take place in some commune out in Simi Valley, California, in the 70s. This was like 1990s Manhattan. And so Spencer's going to share how he got it. Spencer, how did you get, tell us how you, where were you at a point in your life that you uh, were susceptible to being recruited and explain the recruitment process a little. Yeah, I was, well, again, thanks for having me, Andy. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, and I remember that moment very well when I told you, um, and um, we'll talk more about that in a second because, you know, I'm telling my story really because you encouraged it so much um, and you felt it was worthy. So I'm grateful to you for that. But um, let me answer your question. I was 29. I was um, and still am an attorney. I was working at, a, 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 you know, a pretty big firm. You know, my background is, you know, I'm a nice Jewish guy from Long Island, basically. You know, I grew up in a middle class family in an affluent area. You know, I had loving parents, loving friends. You know, I had, I had uh, success. I, you know, I went to great schools. I, you know, got a great job. I, you know, I, I didn't really, I mean, you know, I don't fit the profile, I guess, of, you know, of, of, a, of a cult member. But I, it turned out that I joined one. And, and um, that's what happened. So to answer your question specifically, I was just, you know, working hard, uh, you know, 60 hours a week as a lawyer. And um, an acquaintance um, told me about this group. And I immediately told him, no, I'm not interested in joining a cult because it sounded like a cult to me. Um, do you want me to keep going here? Yeah. Tell us. Tell the story. Okay. I just did an interview on um, a television interview and like you could say three sentences and they're like, yes, that's enough. Thank you very fucking much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't, I could just talk like all week. Andy. No, we know? want, we want the, the, <laughs> the full Monty here. Um, so to answer your question about how I was recruited, 
a guy who I know, yeah, I call him an acquaintance. I didn't really know him that well. Um, you know, um, seemed to be pursuing me for a couple of weeks. You know, he wanted to meet, um, and he was very persistent. And what year was this specifically? 89, 1989. I was 29. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if I said this part before, but I think I already did say this part. You know, he, he <laughs> I'm really, I'm losing track. But basically what happened was, uh, you know, he was pursuing me. He was very persistent about meeting. I had no idea why. And we got together and he said, I have a secret to tell you. And which is that I'm a member of an esoteric school. Um, it's helped me in my life, and it meets two nights a week, and we study the philosophy of Gurdjieff and Aspensky, these Russian mystics who I never heard of mm-hmm. before. See, this, was, was this would be the moment where, like, I would be, like, Roadrunner, like, bing, like, you'd see the dust. <laughs> like, I would be, already be home. What made you go, oh, this sounds intriguing. I shall pursue this with this man well, who yeah. just came up to me uh, in, a, in a strange place. Yeah, so it was exactly my, that was exactly my impulse, and that's exactly what I said. I said I'm not interested in your cult. I really have no interest in it, and I left. Now, the second I got home, unlike you, I have feelings of guilt and remorse sometimes in my life, <laughs> and I felt immediately guilty and remorseful for hurting his feelings because he said this thing was very important for him, and he loved it, and it meant a lot to him. That, I said, okay, you know, that's Ruth. actually the comedic angle of this whole story is that what you're basically saying is I got sucked into I gave up 23 years of my life because I felt guilty for the cult guy that's pretty much it totally it (laughs) that's that's what got me through the door I mean it was pure guilt you know it's, it's an interesting concept because really you know I mean they manipulate you on every aspect possible I don't think it was intentionally new that he would you know get me in because of guilt but that was enough to get me to go to a meeting. So you went on and a second date, or we went on a, which was an actual meeting. Right. And so he asked me to meet him. He didn't tell me where we were going. He told me to meet him on the corner of Broadway and Canal Street on a summer night at 7 o'clock. And we walked down the street to a loft on Franklin and Broadway. And it was a desolate part of the city at that time, really desolate. And um, he took me up to a loft space, and there were about 60 people who were milling about, and there were a bunch of white people like me, basically, you know, in suits and ties, and had just come from Goldman Sachs and law firms, and there were lawyers and bankers and people like me. I was relieved. So at that point, you didn't say to yourself... This smells like a cult. Like, none of that entered your brain. You thought, like, you are hanging out with smart people who are into self-help, and you're going to make new friends, and you're going to help your career. It was all good. That's right. Once I walked through that door, I didn't see anybody chanting, and I didn't see any animal sacrifices, and it was normal-looking people. I said, fine, I'll come. But can I ask you a question? It sounds like even if you had seen an animal sacrifice, you might have stayed. (laughs) <laughs> well, I would have felt guilty. I guess it depends on the animal. <laughs> like, if it was a squirrel, you'd be like, all right, I'll stay. If it was like a dog, you'd be like, hey, I'm out of here. Well, if it was like a chicken or something like that, I suppose we could have had dinner. But that would have been weird. Wasn't. That would have been weird. But it was nothing like, again, there were people like me and you. 
I mean, except for the fact that you have no feelings of guilt or whatever, <laughs> you could have been it's there. Not true. I, I'm, a, actually, I'm, an, I'm in the tribe. I'm a Jew. I, that means like well, I'm loaded with guilt. It's funny because I, I think I told you this, if you don't mind me jumping up. I did years later when it came for me to do recruiting. Cons- you were on a, on a short list of people to recruit. No, you would have failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> and when I asked, you know, I, I, you know, we were to, we had, a, we were supposed to make lists of people to meet and run them by like the leaders. And when I gave them your bio, they were like, "He doesn't sound good." <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, I said, you know, he's very. Oh, see, now, now I'm starting to get insecure. Like, why, I, why wasn't I good enough for the cult? <laughs> why didn't they well, want know, they me, did... Spencer? Why didn't they want me? <laughs> well, I think you checked a lot of the boxes. You made enough money. Um, you, uh, you know, you're intelligent. Um, but I think I, I, conv- I maybe I convinced him. I said, you know, they like what's bad qualities about him. I said, I don't know, you know, he's uh, I don't, maybe he's cynical. Maybe I said he won't. I don't know if he'll really, you know, believe all this stuff. And frankly, I don't think he's unhappy. I mean, you weren't unhappy. Eighty nine. Uh, no. No. Ninety one. Ninety two. That's when unhappiness kind of started to filter in. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys caught me like 94 even i would have you know in my like gangster rap phase uh, that might have been a good time to penetrate the brain so you got in right. share with us like if there's three of the craziest moments that you can remember in your 23 years i i've read your book and so okay. i have my own but I want to hear from you, like, if you can define three crazy moments where even brainwashed, you said to yourself, wait a second, something ain't well, right here. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there was nothing crazy the first year, but it's kind of like this analogy that people say it's kind of like you know you put a frog in warm water and then you turn up the water until it's boiling and they won't leave because they're kind of used to it which i don't i've never done that with a frog so i, I don't know I'm, i was true. just going to say to you i've never done anything sadistic <laughs> to a frog or any or any other animal for that matter so i'm not sure where you're going with this this analogy <laughs> but, Again, I, but i'm curious i'm definitely curious was this it like co- like frog boiling and like frog <laughs> boiling night at the cult? <laughs> like Tuesdays at the cult, we're gonna boil some Can frogs. Can we rename? I think you should rename this one as this, uh, this episode is on animal cruelty. Um, uh, that what we did is uh, no, there was, but the bottom line is we you slowly get used to a very bad situation, and they turn up the heat throughout and. So none of these crazy things happen in the beginning. They happen later on <laughs> once I was really, you know, caught. Um, I would say the single craziest thing that I saw was the leader, whose name was Sharon Gans, tell a woman that she – a woman came into gr- the group. And people would come into class, you know, as mm-hmm. it was called, and talk about their private lives and personal problems and whatnot. And this woman came in and she was complaining about her husband and she wasn't happy and this and that and they weren't having sex and, you know, 
like any marriage. And so she, <laughs> I'm glad you got that one. And then she said, um, Sharon looked at her and said, Carol, you need to get laid. Just and, before, just before you continue, I want to just paint the right picture for the audience. Sharon, yeah. you, you got to imagine like Shel- the old actress Shelley Winters in her final years. Okay, if you can remember what she like, Poseidon Adventure Shelley Winters. Okay, sitting on a throne in the front of a loft in Tribeca, with like two, like at a like at a wedding or a funeral, like two rows of sections of seats with an aisle down the middle with like maybe six, seven, eight seats in each row, maybe 20 rows or whatever. And she's sitting up there literally in a throne. Go ahead. Continue. <laughs> That's exactly it. And she stood up and she, she's reclined in her recliner. I mean, she's, it's like a, she's in a lazy boy pontificating and people are serving her drinks and whatnot. And she said, okay, Carol, you need to get laid. And she, you know, Carol's mouth dropped and Sharon said, and you, you should do it with John. And John, who was also married, stood up and he was so excited that he nearly fell down. He was so excited to hear that he was being chosen to sleep with Carol. And Sharon continued, you need to get laid. You should go with John right now after class go to um, a drugstore, buy oils, buy some condoms, and get a hotel and have sex all night. And did they? Yes. Jesus. And what happened to the marriages? Um, I think John's continued. I think Carol's ended. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think that was a one-night stand um, because uh, I don't... That didn't happen again. But I, I, I uh, witnessed other similar circumstances mm-hmm. well you were different. in a you were in a in an arranged marriage yourself yes you were told yeah. who to marry and you did well it wasn't like you should marry her or you have to marry her it was um more like um this atmosphere of coercion like this woman carol faced and i felt that i mean on reflection i realized that her having sex with this guy was non-consensual because she was brainwashed and I was brainwashed. Right. And I think that's, that's the key is that it doesn't have to be, you need to do this because you're, they, she's already primed you for, she's, so you're, you're open to that kind of quote unquote suggestion more so than I or anybody else would be who wasn't in a cult. Right. So, so it can be a little more subtle. Correct. It, It was, and it was, like here, you know, you ought to consider marrying Beth and she's great and you'd be so happy with her. And, you know, I liked her. I thought she was a nice woman and moderately attractive to me. And, you know, uh, the, with this kind of suggestion, it was more like a command. Mm-hmm. You know, I took it like a command mm-hmm. and that would be good for me. And mm-hmm. that began a uh, um, 13 year marriage. Mm-hmm. And she also, um, Sharon, um, you know, she tried to convince you you were gay, right? Oh, yes, she did. Um, she uh, uh, took advantage of uh, 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 a, um episode in my life where I told her about having been molested when I was uh, 14. And she's about the worst person 
to get any advice from Sharon. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, she would use it and, and twist it around. And, um, I was 14 when I was molested by a 20 year old camp counselor. And, um, when I brought it up to Sharon, I told her that I, you know, it was something that always weighed on me. And I always felt that this was my fault and that I must be gay if I had done something like that. And mind you, I have no attraction to men, never did. But this one event made me think, well, maybe I am. And I always had this feeling throughout my, mm -hmm. you know, most of my life. And so when I told Sharon this, she said, well, you know, it's not unusual for, uh, for boys to experiment. And it's absolutely not unusual for um, a boy to experiment with an older man. Um, and she, uh, she actually talked about Plato and having, you know, uh, P-L-A-T-O. You know, yeah. Who, you know, was known for exactly who was known. I don't know. I mean, she's nuts, so I don't know what she could have been referring to. <laughs> hey, Spencer, you want some Play-Doh? <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so she made it sound like this was a normal thing. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. But instead of saying you were molested, no, you're not gay or anything like that. She turned it into some other well, she, crazy thing. She weaponized it. That was part of exactly. her ability. You know, you told me that they break you down, right? And then when you're broken, they help you build yourself back up. In a way, you could have done it anyway on your own, right? But the key is that they convince you. This is where the real, what I took away from you, your story, when you told me is that the, the, the real key is that you they make you she made you believe that the only reason you're built back up and are successful and thriving is because of the cult because of her because of school and that's that's what keeps you because you, you're afraid if you leave it crumbles again that's so it's true. really it's just total mind control from what i yeah. got, gleaned from you and that's yeah. just horrifying to, to literally break a human. So the, the part about being gay, like, it, it, it just was so insensitive and so evil to sort of use that, weaponize that against you to make you live with more self-doubt and, you know, more trauma so that that was her in to, I mean, it's just really messed up shit. In, in your book, you also talk about the, the retreat out in Montana. This is where in the book I started to get really angry because I'm reading this and like you're describing like getting up at five, eight, all these people were flown out from like yuppie. Like again, to the audience, I want to say Spencer is a, a, the kind of lawyer that you should hire if you want to just rip someone's insides out. He is the last person on earth that I would ever have thought would be flown out to Montana to do free labor, building someone's deck, starting at five o'clock in the morning. The, I mean, the, the description of like the stripping of the wood, f I, I got so anxious just because it was such like finite precision work that you guys didn't have experience doing. And she would get angry if you didn't do it right and you'd have to do it over again and, and you didn't get to eat until God knows what. Like, was that just like the craziest part for you? Like, because it sounds like from the book that that's when you started to realize, like, wait a second, this is, this is crazy. 
it's funny that you say that because it was actually something I loved going out to Montana. I really did. Hmm. Um, and it was at that, that, that first day where I was stripping the wood, I was very unhappy. And I really thought this was enough was enough. And later on that night, if you recall, there was a meeting with Sharon and I told her that, you know, part of me wanted to leave and I was thinking, why don't they hire somebody to do this and why the fuck am I doing this and blah, 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 blah. And she uh, said, she laughed. She thought that was funny and everybody else laughed. And the conversation turned into, well, that part of yourself that thinks you're better than this is vanity and false pride and you need to be more humble and by coming here on retreat you're going to learn about humility about service about helping uh, me sharon because i'm your teacher and this will in turn help you and give you a tool to help navigate your life and so she flipped it all around <laughs> i mean she fucking flipped it around mm -hmm. so i used to look forward every summer for a couple of decades going out there and working in very dangerous circumstances. Hmm. I definitely don't think you would have stayed on this cult. I really can't <laughs> see you staying very long. No, it would have been group. something like strip wood, five o'clock in the morning. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been it. I don't even. I don't even think I would have made it on the plane. But nah, but you I you know you said before you you know you were unhappy you were at a low point in your life and that's what they do. So what was the right. point where you said I got to get out of here? Well, this was, uh, you know, it, it really happened uh, uh, 12 years in. A lot of my friends uh, who were in the group wanted to leave because Sharon really lost her shit um, on one of these retreats and was ex even more um, abusive than she'd ever been. And uh, a whole group of us were going to leave. Um, but um, as it turned out, my then wife, who's now my ex-wife, she wanted to stay. And uh, I, I realized, you know, if I left, the marriage would end. And although uh, I just didn't want to lose my marriage at that point, you know, mm -hmm. I wasn't unhappy in it. And so I, I was stuck. Um, so really, it wasn't until many years later, really two years before I left, that I that the, the, the cracks of my involvement started. And it started when Sharon got really meddled in my divorce and tried to uh, you know, uh, have my child taken from me and she got involved in my business in a way that was, uh, you know, uh, putting me at risk mm -hmm. in, with my law license. And, um, that was pretty much the end. And I guess, you know, the thing that I wanted to say to you is it was a feeling of betrayal. I realized these people were not in my corner, mm -hmm. you know, um, and once you realize that, it's kind of easy to leave. Do you look back on it now and sometimes say to yourself, how the hell was I in a cult for 23 years? 20, 23 years is a long time to go through the full gamut of everything you went through until you realize it's time to get out. Or, or for you, it just, it just was what it was, right? And that's, that, that cult is still going on, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're going on. They are meeting. They have probably about 100 or 200 people, and it's still 
Um, they're much more undercover now um, than they were in my day. Um, but what do you think the you book know, is going to do to that? How is it, how will it impact the existence still of this cult? Um, is your hope that it helps bring it down? Yeah, I mean that's the idea. Mm-hmm. The, the the more people who read it, um, uh, the more it's in the news and it has been in the post. And it's gonna the post is doing another article this mm-hmm. weekend actually wow. about it. And uh, uh, you know uh, the more publicity that I do, the more word gets out. And uh, you know I've already had people who are in the cult call me and say, "Hey, wait a second, I think I'm in that group." You know that Sharon is dead. And people don't use their names, and they're very good at cloaking who they are. Um, and um, so I, I do think it's, it's going to make a difference, and I hope uh, to put it to close it. Well, I, I hope you're right, and I, I thank you for sharing your story. I think it's important that people hear it. I, I, it's, an inc- it's a truly incredible story because most people, I think, when they think of cults, they think of like hippy dippy freaks, you know, and there's some guy with a headband who's like giving them LSD. It's like just that's, you know, that's most of, you know, I think the vow helped change that, you know, right. Bring it into right. the urban sphere with, uh, you know, more elite type people, you know, educated people, successful people. But it's still not something you think about when you think about a cult. You don't think about a guy like Spencer Schneider in the middle of Manhattan being dominated in his marriage, in his career, in his, in every aspect of his, you, you, you know, she cut you off from your friends and your family. You know, we didn't get into that, but you know, you, there was years where you just weren't in contact with friends and family. So, uh, Manhattan cult story, it's quote, my unbelievable true story of sex, crimes, chaos, and survival. Again, it's on Amazon and bookstores everywhere. Uh, it's riveting. You're going to read this book and you're not going to believe that shit like this goes down. So Spencer, thanks again for, for doing this and good luck with the book, man. Thank you so much. Andy. Alrighty. Take care. Happy to be here. What an incredible story. I mean, every time I think about what Spencer has been through and how he's come out the other side, relatively sane, like all of us and thriving in his life and his career and, it just, um, I don't really understand personally, you know, the, the whole cult phenomenon. I, I'm, maybe I'm just a strong-willed person. I'm opinionated. I, I am a skeptic. Uh, I do believe that, you know, there's a lot of people out there out to screw you. And so my antenna goes way up. And so I'm always interested to understand how people, you know, whether it's Spencer or people from Jonestown that literally end up going, Sure, I'll I'll drink the cyanide and die. Like, what gets you to that place? And but you know, like I was saying earlier, in a way, it, it, we see that in politics. We see that in our country today with with uh, Trumpism and, and the cult of personality of Trump. I think Trump is a cult leader, and he's convinced tens of millions of people that no matter what bad shit happens to them and this country. It's all better for him and that they should love that. And guess what? They do. Anyway, uh, it's time to go to our next guest. Uh, She is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst and host of Jill on Money. Welcome into the back room, Jill. Thanks for having me, Andy. So let's get right into something that uh, concerns me personally as an American. 
You have inflation at record levels. Job growth is now slowing. The stock market has been on a, a roller coaster. There's all this talk of recession. Um, if you spend any amount of time watching TV or listening to the radio or reading a newspaper, you know, there's a lot of economists and certainly Republicans that are acting uh, as if the sky is falling. So is the sky falling? Well, I'm not allowed to say that the sky is falling, but nor am I allowed to say don't panic because my Jewish mother in Westchester has basically said I can never say don't panic because she always feels panicky when I say that. Um, you know what? Look, it's not a great time for the economy in this moment, and we're at a real transition point. And I think it's worth um, saying that like nobody wants a recession, but a recession is becoming more and more likely. Um, and a recession is probably, again, it, there is human suffering to it, but it is a normal part of an economic cycle. So it's not something so much to be feared as it's something to prepare for, to understand that, hey, this could happen. And frankly, even if we don't have what is classically termed a recession by the National Bureau of Economic Research, we are having a slowdown. And, that's and, and by the way, that's, that would be defined as two quarters in a no. row, so or is no, that a misconception? Not, I mean, that, so that's somewhat of a misconception. It's sort of, that's like the shorthand, but there's actually a, a body, an economic body called the National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, and they've got a, um, an, a part of the organization called, you ready for this? The Dating Committee. And uh, they swipe left or right to find out whether there's a recession. I'm just kidding. But what they do is they look at a number of different factors. They weigh those factors. And then they are the ones who declare whether or not a recession has occurred. So, you know, I know a lot of people will say two negative quarters in a row. But if you look back to the spring of 2020, we had a recession in the beginning of COVID, right? March, basically the third week of February till the end of March. Mm-hmm. That was only two months. That wasn't even one whole quarter. And it was a recession, all right. I mean, the the economy cratered. And we were in a recession for a very short and deep period. But it wasn't two consecutive quarters. But the National Bureau of Economic Research came out in the aftermath and said, here is the beginning, here is the end. So, you know, sometimes recessions can be very short and intense and deep, like the COVID recession. And sometimes you can have shallow recessions Mm -hmm. and sometimes you can have like the worst combination, which was the recession that followed the uh, the 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 financial crisis, which was deep and long. And I don't think that we're going to get either of the those two recent ones. Um, What it looks like is we're getting a Federal Reserve very interested in slowing down the economy. It is hard for the Federal Reserve to make this right. Um, they're, they're not going to exactly get it right. It, if they do, it would be a high probability. So we're going to get a slowdown. And for some people, it's going to feel awful, like a very awful recession. And for other people, it's not going to be so bad. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be a slowdown, if not a recession, in let's call it the next 18 months. So I'm going to ask you a question. It's been many years since I, since I served as a member of the Federal Reserve. So I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little hazy on, on my factoids. But just it's, what you're describing sounds so arbitrary. So, for example, if there were two negative quarters of GDP, right, mm-hmm. you're, is there a scenario where uh, the, the board that you mentioned can say, nope, but we're not in a recession? 
and like the media and unlikely. political it's politicians kind of, wouldn't pounce all over that? Well, it's unlikely, right? Because normally if you have a contraction that is lasting for six months, chances are they're going to come back and say that was a recession. Mm -hmm. But it might be kind of intriguing to you to understand that there are times where they'll the the NBER will sort of err on the other side. They'll say, like, the recession started at this point. So, for example, I, I think many people would be surprised to learn that the Great Recession, which we kind of think about as like, oh, that was the financial crisis was 2008 and 2009. Things got really awful and things kind of bottomed out in 2010. According to NBER, the recession started in December of 2007. And so often what they're doing is, and if you go on their website, it is kind of cool because they don't really like, it's kind of like, um, it's like the real, it's like the formula or the recipe for Coca-Cola. They don't release the exact metrics, but you get the sense that they do a lot of weighing weight. They give a lot of weight towards the labor market and they give a lot of weight towards output um, in terms of the, uh, of the economy mm -hmm. and exports. And so... All that being said, it's, it's not quite as arbitrary. It's almost like two negative quarters would probably be a recession. Chances are they would make it a longer period of time. But, mm -hmm. you know, look, what do we know? We know that the global economy was frozen on purpose because of COVID. The governments of the advanced economies of the world sent people home gave them money, said, do not go out, do not spend money, and let's get a hold of this thing. And that was a very specific and some course of action that had not been taken ever. And as we came out of that period, the economy had starts and stops mm -hmm. and starts and stops. And what we now know in retrospect is that I think politicians as well as the federal reserve board and other central banks did the best they could in real time they now in retrospect probably made some decisions that weren't ideal but they did do the best they could and now we are grappling with you know four decade high in inflation the fed's got to raise rates we can't take the money back from various stimulus plans that wasn't probably spent in the best way, the most efficient way. Mm -hmm. And we are where we are. So the Fed is raising rates and all the advanced economies are going to start raising rates and they are going to slow things down. There's no doubt about it. It's already starting to happen. And when the Fed is chasing inflation, once it's already gone up, the chance of a recession becomes very high because mm -hmm. Basically, the idea of raising interest rates is a very blunt tool. There's no nuance to it. And so they'll often overshoot. And that's where the risk lies right now. Mm -hmm. And so the, the is issue of interest rates and, and also combine that with inflation and the things that are hitting the average American the hardest, the, the, the middle class, the working class, let's say. We were basically at zero rates for, for so many years. I mean, is it... Is it just that we got so used to interest rates being nothing that like four and five percent, which historically is not bad at all, all of a sudden that that's like that's the the sky is falling rhetoric, uh, you know, fueling that rhetoric? Um, well, 
it's it's not as much like the, the there's just like some very strange things that can happen in an economy that is advanced like the U.S. economy. And I I I, I mean I, I let me just do a name drop, and it's not one of your Hollywood name drops, Andy. Um, I was in the green room at CBS um, this morning a few years back. This is well before the the um, the COVID era, mm-hmm. and. You know, I'm such a goof and such a nerd that when Ben Bernanke was in the house, I was the only one on the entire staff who was excited. And I was excited, believe me. And I went up to him and I pulled him aside and I said, oh, let's leave this room. It's mic'd. I want to ask you some questions. And he's like, no, that's okay. Like, I'll talk to you. It doesn't matter. Like, on the record, off the record, it's fine. And I said... I just I don't really understand why the economy can't grow like is maybe probably 15, 16. He goes, it's going to grow. He goes, it's just not going to grow by as much as you want because we have an aging population and we are in an advanced economy where as the baby boomers start to retire, that is deflationary. And that's the critical issue that is hanging over the economy and the the issue around that, as, as I think about it today, is not so much that, yeah, that rates were low for too long, which they were, but that we have a demographic issue that is a problem in our labor force, in our economy, which would, you know, frankly, by a lot of um, economists, not like we're not talking about politics, economists really believe would be uh, uh, alleviated by a much more expansive immigration policy. Like, let's just get a bunch of people in here. Let's get them in the U.S. Let's get them working. And that will create a nice churn in the economy. And we, so we had this very strange situation where not only did we freeze the economy and we dropped interest rates down to zero, but we also were at a time where no one was coming into the country. And we, our labor force just shrank. And it is very difficult to grow an economy without a little extra help, meaning fiscal and monetary mm-hmm. stimulus, if you don't have people. Right. And that's where we are right now. And what? so it's not so much that it's like artificially low, like artificial, like that's what monetary policy is. It's an artificial injection or mm-hmm. um, or removal of, 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 of funds from the economy to either juice it up or slow it down. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the people who who say it feels like, you know, I always, I always remember, you know, John Edwards and his two Americas. Right. And you hear so many people today say the economy feels differently depending upon which group you're in. If you're in the upper classes, you know, you don't really think about or talk about recession too much. If you are in the, the lower and middle classes and, and every gas tank fill up is in, is critical in your life and and buying milk that's you know 30% more expensive than last year you're living in a different economy and it, and just me personally it does feel that way it feels like americans are not experiencing the pain equally well i mean the the thing about um inflation and why it is so pernicious is that it is disproportionately hard on people who make less than the median household income. And it makes sense, right? Because if I make 65 grand a year in my household, what are my three huge expenses? One, where I live, either renting or or a house or the owning a house. 
two, food, three, energy. And so a bigger share of my total income goes to those three things, which means I really take it on the chin when it comes to inflation. Mm -hmm. Now, if you make $300,000 a year, the, the, the weird part about inflation is that even though a smaller share of your total is going to those items, you completely lose your mind because you're like, Jesus Christ, it takes so much money to fill up my Range Rover. <laughs> and so what happens is the, the strange part about inflation is that it, it's not that it doesn't affect everybody. It, it, it impacts everyone. It disproportionately hurts people at the medium to lower end. And the people at the upper end are feeling it and just complain about it. And that's what breeds so much negativity. Mm -hmm. So as I sit here and talk to you today in the beginning of July, the most interesting factoid that I, and you know me, I love my factoids. Who um, doesn't love I, a good factoid? I mean, you just know, the word like factoid is great. Charts and also charts and factoids. I love it. Um, and you know, the factoid that I think is fascinating is the university of Michigan has a consumer sentiment index. They, they take a reading twice every month in June. The University of Michigan sentiment index fell to an all-time low. Do you know how long this has been in effect? It's 50 freaking years. So if you think about all of the shit that has happened in the last 50 years, and this is the absolute worst I've felt. But you see, that's that's my point. It's like, what do you say to the idiots like me who go, well, Jill, you walk around Manhattan and uh, the restaurants are full, the bars are full, the movies, Broadway shows, concerts, the travel industry is is experiencing record revenue. Like, what do you say to people who, who look around and go like, it doesn't, like, to your point, it now is the worst this doesn't feel so bad that's, i know that but i mean so that's the thing that's so crazy but that's also why inflation is so dangerous because whatever level you're at you feel it in some way and it becomes this exaggerated presence in your life you know i can think of in the last 20 years times that i've been much more fearful about what's going on in the economy than where we are today now, here's one little bit of good news that might make you feel better about this, and that is that inflation is going to come down. There's no doubt about it. The, the question is, the wage gains that we've seen at the, for say, let's say the lower third of Americans have been pretty robust. Mm -hmm. I mean, you notice that we're not talking about like, Let's I mean, even though it's so silly that we don't have a federal minimum wage that's moved, I mean, essentially, Amazon moved the minimum wage right on its own. And if you look at a lot of the people who work in leisure and hospitality in warehousing, those jobs are paying a lot more money. So conceivably, I'm not saying this will happen, but conceivably, one might paint a picture where there could be some pain in, across the economy, but as inflation comes down, are those big firms going to slash wages? I doubt it. Mm -hmm. And so the hope among economists is, hey, what would be kind of cool is if we had a shallow recession where the, the, the class of people that own stocks takes it on the chin and where bonuses are down on Wall Street and where software engineers who have you know a year of college don't make two hundred thousand dollars for dropping out mm -hmm. that those people take it on the chin and that those at the bottom actually 
retain their wage gains. And mm-hmm. so as prices come down, it could be that we see that there's progress made. Right. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that's kind of like a generalized hope. Right, because real wages are up, what, like 5 6%, right? Well, wages are up about 5%, mm-hmm. but if And inflation is 8%? Half, yeah, 8 and a half. So then if, you see that you're, you're screwed, right? You're behind. Right, right. But there are many jobs at the lower end where wages are up more. Like if you look at two years and you look at wages, mm-hmm. wages are up quite a bit for the lower third of earners. And, you know, the, the biggest problem that I have in general is that nobody really likes to label the good guy, the bad guy, the good actor, the bad actor. I think that generally speaking, when I talk to the smartest economists that I know, what they say is the Fed screwed it up. Mm-hmm. They waited too long to raise rates. But you know what? They're human beings. Mm-hmm. Jerome Powell is um, is is subject to the same recency bias that you and I are subject to meaning that whatever has happened most recently shapes the way we behave right now. Mm-hmm. So if you look at all the Fed officials who came of age with no inflation, they never experienced inflation as Fed officials, and what are they shaped by? They're shaped by the Great Recession. The big knock on the Fed during the Great Recession was that Bernanke and Yellen were too quick to raise interest rates, and that really hurt people at the lower end of the earning scale. Mm-hmm. And they did not want to repeat that. They wanted to make sure that people were taken care of. And the big mistake that was made among all lawmakers in the Great Recession and the financial crisis is they did not provide real people who were losing their homes with help. They did a great job of pulling Wall Street out of the doldrums, back from the precipice. They didn't help real people. So they overdid it and help real people almost too much. And there was too many dollars facing too few goods. And the Fed did not recognize that it had passed the point where it needed to do something until it was too late. And when Biden got into office, he had promised another stimulus and it was already unnecessary at mm-hmm. that point. Right. So all, you put it all together and throw a war on top of it and you have an inflationary cocktail that is very difficult to shove down your throat. Right. Is, in your opinion, is is recession priced into the stock market right now? I don't know. I mean, you know, the stock market is so, you know, full of a bunch of dumb, dumb you know, dum-dums who think they know better, right? Um, so retail investors have not panicked. They're not pulling money out of the market. Um, institutions are very twitchy right now. But that's because they made so much money on the way up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is stands to reason, I think, that the stocks that did the best during the pandemic came back down to earth. There's like a real concern that like mergers and acquisition activity is going to slow down, mm-hmm. that corporate finance is going to be hurt. But, you know, big companies are in fine shape. Right. U.S. balance sheets are actually not in terrible shape. Yeah, no, shape. earnings seasons you know? have been great. I mean, yeah. relatively speaking, so... Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean it can't change and bad things can happen. And I mean, the best thing about um, risky assets that are going down in value and have gone down in value is that your moronic friend who always like said to you, oh, my God, you're such an idiot for not owning crypto. You don't have to listen to that anymore. So that's the good. That's the good news. I'm glad you just I'm glad you just said that. Let's I want to go to a clip right now. Go ahead, Maddie. Put that on. I don't know. I mean, obviously expensive 
you know, digital images of monkeys are going to improve the world immensely. Uh, we all agree on and, that. And, uh, you know, that's so incredible. Uh, anyway, I'm used to asset classes where, like a farm, where they have output or a company where they make products. Yeah. Have an asset class that's 100% based on sort of greater fool theory that somebody's going to pay more for it than I do, uh, and where it has at its heart sort of this anonymity that, you know, you avoid taxation or any sort of, you know, government rules about kidnapping fees or things. Yeah. Um, so that was Bill Gates basically saying, if you invest in crypto and NFTs, you're an idiot. I mean, what is, what is, are you a fan or uh, uh, do you share Gates's opinion on, on this kind of activity? Well, first of all, I will not invite those crypto bros attacking me. I have enough anti-Semitic, homophobic <laughs> crap in my feed that I don't need that. Okay. Well, so, you, can, you always, uh, you always have room for like one or two crypt, you know, angry crypto bros. I know, no, I know. I, I you gotta love the crypto I bros. Can I just tell you something funny though? I remember when the whole GameStop fiasco was going on, and I went on a podcast with my friend Jeff, who's a much younger guy, and I love him to death, and. I was trying to explain things. And the worst insult that I got was someone said, this lady. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, lady? By the way, for the audience, about? I can assure you, Jill Schlesinger is no lady. Yeah, no lady. Um, um, look, I don't, um, I have had people explain to me why this is the most amazing thing in the world. Um, this thing called the blockchain. And. You know, I guess that like as a thought experiment, as someone who is a little bit of a math head, uh, OK, I, I can indulge it. I still really don't get the use case. I really don't. And this comes from like my first crypto story for CBS was in I think it was 2010 when Bitcoin went above 1000. It went from like thirteen dollars to a thousand. I was asked to do something about that, you know, talk about that. And, uh, you know, at that time, I was like, well, you know, it's like used from some bad stuff and I don't know a lot about it. And I got hammered um, and then, you know, by the crypto bros. And then, you know, look, I've been watching it. I am fascinated to watch manias in general. I, it, I, at my first job on Wall Street, I was a commodities trader. So it looked like a plain old commodities, like charge in euphoric you know, let's buy the tulips, let's buy anything. Um, I don't think that anyone has actually convinced me that there is an amazing case um, for decentralized finance. I mean, I, I, as you know, Andy, I'm a product of, uh, you know, sort of a Wall Street family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I like to consider the industry like uh, my drunk uncle that I love very much, but I get embarrassed when that uncle behaves badly. Um, and, and I, I like centralization. I mean, I sort of giggle every time there's some sort of um, mayhem with crypto where people are like, well, it was just a scam. And who who's going to help me with this? Well, you wanted decentralization. Mm -hmm. Go go for it. You lost your your fob too bad. And so the idea that some of these some of these organizations were able to raise money hand over fist as if we should like say, oh, those private equity people are so smart. Maybe they are. I, I just don't see it. So I've never owned crypto. Um, I have friends who've made money doing it. I know some really smart people who threw a few bucks at it, like as if it were like, well, you know, let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. So I don't know people who are really, you know, deep into it. 
Um, as you know, my girlfriend works at a major Wall Street firm. And, you know, when I ask her about like her colleagues and who owns it, like nobody owns it. Right. We all sort of are waiting. It's almost like you're watching the ocean churn up and you see these massive waves in there. And you're like, maybe when it calms down, I'll go in the water. But right now, yeah. maybe not. Maybe. Maybe. The key word is maybe. I mean, I, I personally, I don't get it. I don't want to get it. If I, you know, years ago, if someone would say bandwidth, I wanted to slap them. Now, if someone says to me blockchain, I, I want to slap them. Like, I just have no, I don't like crypto bros. I don't like anything crypto related because i i personally think it's a scam but we'll see I mean, you- and, and you know what and it could be and it and and it could also be like we we don't actually see what ends up being the case for it that's the other piece of it like i'm willing to say like i don't know maybe it's going to be something i'll wait and i'll be a late adopter i'm a late adopter of many things including dogs yeah, exactly. Uh, late adopter of, of sexuality. You know, I had to get married to a man and then a woman. You know, Didn't we all? For, I mean, really, unbelievable. So before I let you go, I got one last thing I want to ask you about. I want to shift uh, to the political landscape really quickly, because uh, we've been talking a lot about econ- the economy, recession, inflation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How much of that do you think this particular year you know, when you think about, you know, what James Carville once said is the economy stupid. And, and there's a cult of Carville fans who believe it's always going to be the economy stupid. But is the economy with everything else that's going on right now, Roe v. Wade, mass shootings every other day, like, is it still do you think it's still going to be the economy stupid? And in that and if so, should that really keep Democrats up at night for November? Mm, I. I'm afraid to tell you that this inflation issue is really intense and it's not going away. And um, and it should keep I mean, should it keep people up? Like what keeps me up is like, you know, I don't want to get covid. I'm trying to figure out how to have lunch with my friend Andy. I hope my family is safe. You know, like those are the things that keep me up. I've never been Mm -hmm. kept up by the economy or politics, except when I think democracy is dying, which may be happening. Um, unfortunately, right now, I that would that, that would actually be what I was referring to about being kept up at night if you're a Democrat. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that you should. I think it is. Uh, so, you know, coming out of the closet as an Upper West Side lesbian Jewess, um, I think there are many things that keep me up at night. None of them are economics related. Many of them are about fairness and um, faith that you're working, even if you don't believe the exact same thing, that you're working towards the same ultimate goal. And so that's that's what is upsetting. Um, the The economy is going to cause many of the switching from, you know, one party to another party to another party to another party. Like it's a, that's going to happen anyway. Um, and you know how I feel about this, Andy. It's just like very few parties or presidents should get as much credit for a good economy and as blame for a bad economy. You know, so, I mean, it, 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 it is horrifying for me to imagine that there's going to be an even stronger move right word because of the economy. But I do think that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm going to end on this note. I'm going to say that uh, what I suspect as in what keeps you up at night as an Upper West Side uh, lesbian Jewess is the eventual closing of Zabar's. Am I wrong? Are you are you Am I saying wrong? that that's going to happen? I don't. I no, don't. no. Do you, I'm just saying you, like that. You if, say, could that happen? I mean, it yeah. could happen. There's no doubt. You know what? Look, I mean, the the hard. Th- I I'm just back. I was I was traveling overseas, and there was I I must say a blissful moment of saying I don't want to think about this, and I am very immersed in a news cycle because of the world I'm in. But it was kind of great to be doing something else, clear your head, come back and say, you know what? Uh, I got to do something now. Like I, now I got to get busy. I have mm-hmm. things to do. Um, I was listening to um, Ezra Klein's podcast. I think it was Ezra Klein's podcast. And he was talking to somebody about, um, you know, about Roe and the overturning and where the Supreme Court has gone. And there was a book that was recommended, which I actually read on the airplane coming back. And um, it's by Rebecca Solnit, and it's called Hope in the Dark. And it was written at a very different time. You know, it was written in like 2003-4. And I think that one thing that became clear to me in just kind of reading this is that um, hope is not like I'm putting my head into the sand and I hope that everything goes okay. Hope is like... I'm going to use this ability and this energy that I'm feeling right now to do something more meaningful, to advance even in the smallest of ways. Mm -hmm. And so if you feel like, you know, I'm hopeless, then you sit at home, you suck your thumb, you do nothing. But hope should hopefully, uh, hopefully, hope should catalyze you into doing something. So if you are feeling hopeless about the economy, then go out and do something that is going to help somebody else. And if you are feeling hopeless about where we are in the fight for, you know, equality with women, then go support women candidates. Like for me, doing something feels so much better than waiting for something to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good attitude to have. And, and, and you know, we're going to leave on that note, except we're going to leave on one other last note. You know, Uh-oh. I want to know when when Jill Schlesinger is not uh, predicting economic gloom and doom or uh, spreading uh, euphoric positivity in the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does Jill do for fun? 30 seconds. OK, Jill goes out with her friend Andy for lunch next week. Right. We have a date. We do. Uh, did you want to also disclose the fact that, like, you know me and that we're friends and that, like, don't, you're going to do that, right? Because, I, I'm like, going to do it right now. I, I just wasn't uh, sure that that would be OK with you. But Jill and I know oh, each no, other no. a very long time. I know Jill when she was just like a marketing assistant at a, at a catalog company. Yeah, and when, uh, I was, when I was waiting around to get married. Yeah. Or divorced or and, whatever and I was. Watching you go from, you know, the Ross Simons catalog to doing some <laughs> financial planning in Rhode Island to some local spots on the radio to Fox News and then CBS and then like eating my cereal and watching you on CBS Sunday morning and all that good stuff. Like it's just, it's truly incredible how you have over the years reinvented yourself. Uh, you should also know guys that Jill was one of the few people uh, when I got married um, once uh, by an Elvis impersonator in Las Vegas. Yes. 
Jill was there. Uh, I was so there, we, I was there. we do and, go and back a long way. Your, wait a second. Andy, I was at two of your three weddings. I'm <laughs> sad that I had to not I, I have knew, I knew you were going to go there. I mean, it's yeah, so well, sad. Hey, look, you know what? I, I believe in like, you know, if if you go through your whole life with this, like if you get you fall off the bike, get back on and keep riding bullshit. Well, mm-hmm. that what better to do that with than marriage, right? Well, I mean, I think both you and I believe very much in the institution, <laughs> perhaps overly We so. believe in it so much <laughs> that we just keep doing it. We keep doing yeah. it. So, okay, so here's what I do for fun. We're keeping um, the wedding I business like, in business. Exactly. Uh what I, I I'm a big reader. Um, I like uh, you know binging on my television. Um, I'm very close to my family. You know the and um, and I I'm very into deep relationships. So I don't have a lot of them, mm-hmm. but I love I hate superficial relationships, even though I'm very good at those. But I like depth, which is why gentle listeners, why Andy and I fell in love in nineteen. 91? Is that right, Andy? Yeah, and I've been trying to flip you basically for 30 years to no it's success. So, it's such a lie. Still uh, a lesbian. Evidently, evidently, you keep putting that out there, but you know that's a big lie. But um, I adore you. So I like being, I like um, very interesting, dark, and funny people. And um, you are one of them. And you are somebody who has reinvented yourself as well. And uh, I adore you and I wish you the best of luck with your brand new show, which has a funny name, just in case anyone wanted to know why I'm such a bad person. I, I just wanted to get that in there. Well, I, I suspect I know why you're making that reference, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so we'll leave on that note. Jill Schlesinger, uh, financial guru, CBS uh business analyst no what's what did, what did you tell me cbs news business jill analyst Schlesinger. and like, host like, of jill on money funny, fyi this is one of the funniest things that happens to me because like i'll say this is it this is the, the only thing that you do get right as opposed to every other anchor that i've ever worked with is that you know how to pronounce my name which i think is sless rhymes with less sless in jer cbs news business analyst host of jill on money and andy's pal exactly and I'm damn glad you are. See you and soon. I am See you next week. Well. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. So there you have it. Episode four in the can. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So leave us a message at 845-307-7446 or shoot us an email at backroomandy at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Andy Ostroy. At this point, I want to thank you, Maddie Rosenberg, engineer and producer extraordinaire. Cricket Langell for our logo graphic design, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, and a big thank you again to our awesome guests, Spencer Schneider and Jill Schlesinger. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and in your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Have a great week. <laughs>